Now we come to the fourth book, the book of Numbers, in the plenitude of the Psalms. And it opens with a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And it's the only one that we have of Moses. Now, since Moses is the first writer in the Bible, wouldn't you naturally think that if you'd been arranging the book of Psalms, that you would have put the book of Moses here, that is, what we have is the 90th Psalm, wouldn't you have put it as number one, Psalm 1? The very interesting thing is that you and I didn't arrange it. I'm of the opinion that God supervised even the arrangement here, and because it falls into place in such a very wonderful way. And you have here this book of Numbers, and it opens with Moses, and the pictures out there on the desert. Remember when they left the land of Egypt? They came first to Mount Sinai, were given the law. Then they went up to enter into the land, and they didn't enter into the land. They turned back into that frightful desert, and for 38 years they wandered in that desert until that generation died. You know, Moses saw a lot of people die, several million of them. And this is a psalm of death. Now, Psalm 9 is a psalm of death. Psalm 91 is a psalm of life. And we'll get to Psalm 91, I hope, today. Will you notice what he says here? This, to me, is a remarkable psalm. And it was Martin Luther who said of this psalm, he says, "...just as Moses acts in teaching the law..." So does he in this psalm. And it actually teaches death, sin, and condemnation. What? In order that he may alarm the proud who are secure in their sin, that he may set before their eyes their sin and their evil. It was Martin Luther who wrote that. May I say to you, that is the teaching of this psalm. Now, notice how majestic and sublime it opens. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And the word everlasting is very interesting in the Hebrew. It's very figurative. It means from the vanishing point to the vanishing point, thou art God. That is, from back yonder to the vanishing point in eternity past, looking out yonder to the future in eternity future. And you just go as far as you can to the vanishing point. He's still God. Oh, how majestic this is. And man is just the creature of God. He is the offspring, as it were. Back in Genesis, Moses had written, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And then again, that's Genesis 1, 27. And in Genesis 2, 7, he says, And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living soul. This is a psalm that speaks of the fact of the creation of man. Man's not an evolved animal, but he's a creature that's in a class by himself. And he has a body that's taken from the ground, and that's a body that he's going to earn his living down here by the sweat of his brow, until the day comes when unto dust thou shalt return. Because God took his body out of the ground and God created him. That's the picture of man. Now notice what he says. Thou turnest frail man to dust. And sayest, return ye children of man. Go back to where you came from far as the body is concerned, but a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it's past and as a watch in the night. Suppose, my friend, you live as long as Methuselah lived, almost a thousand years. Suppose you did. <laughs> that would just be like a watch in the night. It would be just like the flight of a bird through a lighted room 
coming out of the darkness in one window, going out another window into the darkness again. Even if you lived a thousand years, you're not very much. Man actually is more or less of a colossal failure, friends. If you take his time that he's on this earth as compared to eternity. As a watch in the night, thou sweepest them away as a flood. There is a sleep. In the morning there is grass that groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and springeth up. By the evening it is cut down and withered. That's a picture of man. And Moses out there in that wilderness, several million people died. He went to more funerals probably than anyone else. And the man taken from the ground, he saw him go back to the ground as far as his body is concerned. That leads me to say this. I've had several letters, but I thought about cremation. I do not believe in it. Oh, I don't mean by that that God can't raise up your body if you're cremated, but it's the testimony that you give. Now, here in Southern California, a great many unbelievers, when they die, They want to be cremated, their ashes taken, and scattered out on the ocean out here. I knew an undertaker here many years ago in Pasadena, and he was a pilot. That's what he did. He told me that there are many people like that. They want the ashes scattered out on the ocean. You know why? They don't want God to be able to get them back together again. He'll be able to get them. Now, my Christian friend, you give a testimony when you take your dead in Christ out yonder and put them in the cemetery. Why? Because the figure of speech that's used is of a seed. If a grain of seed falls into the ground as a picture of his death and resurrection, now we sow them. (laughs) And they used to call, in the early days, they called a cemetery, they called it two things, an inn. That is, a place where people just sleep for a little while overnight. And they call it a field. That's where you plant your seed. You don't burn up your seed. And your testimony is, when you bury your dead, is that one of these days they'll be raised up. What a picture that we have here. Now, he says here, and I drop down to verse 8, "...thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance." Dr. Chafer used to say, that secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. What you do down here, the angels are watching you, friends. Verse 9, For all our days are passed away. In thy wrath we spend our years as a tale that is told. Now, the Hebrew there is very figurative. We spend our years as a moan. That's all we just go through life moaning, by the way. A moan. That's all our little life is down here in sin. My friend, if you haven't a hope for eternity, and if you haven't a Savior, may I say to you, you just don't have anything to live for, do you? And you don't have any purpose in life or any direction at all. How important it is to see this here. This is a glorious, wonderful psalm that we have here. Now, the days of our years are threescore years and ten. That's 70. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, that's 80. Yet is their strength, labor, and sorrow, for it's soon cut off and we fly away. Now, if you make it to 80, you're sure going to have a lot of rheumatism. You're going to have a, a lot of arthritis if you and I live to that. I'm already finding that out. May I say to you, friends, that's a picture of us down here. And if you make it to 80, it's going to be uphill all the way. We talk about that when we come to the sunset of life. My friend, that's when you really start going uphill, not downhill. It's uphill all the way. Why, we just pass our days, and that's it. It's just a moan. It's well to have a future. It's well to have a hope. Now, we come to the end of this, and I'll not deal with these other verses, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And Christ is the one that's made unto us wisdom. If you have Christ, you have wisdom and you have a hope. Verse 17, And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, 
and establish thou the work of our hands upon us, yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. Oh, to do something down here that will have a value in eternity, friends. Oh, this is a glorious psalm, and we just passed over it rather hurriedly. Now, friends, I come to the 91st Psalm, and last time we saw the 90th Psalm when we were finishing, and that was a psalm of death. Moses out there in the wilderness. You can see him day after day having to pause on the wilderness march to bury someone. And he got a perspective of life that many of us do not get even today. Then Psalm 91 is a psalm of life, and it's a messianic psalm, and it reveals a wonderful place of protection and of security today. It has a meaning for us, but it is a picture also of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is one psalm that is very popular, and God's people of all ages When I mean of all ages, I mean that in two ways. I mean young and old, and I mean those from the past down to the present have been greatly blessed by this 91st Psalm. And the 90th Psalm actually was a picture of the first man, Adam. In Adam all die. That's the Psalm of death. But this second Psalm is the Lord from heaven, and it's truly a Messianic psalm, it's a psalm of life. And this is a psalm that's quoted by Satan. I've almost preached a sermon one time on this psalm. I didn't do it, but I intended to. Never got around to it. And I had a subject, and my subject was the psalm that Satan reads. Here's a psalm and he knows. We'll see that when we get to it. Now we are told here... He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall tempt under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of Jehovah, He's my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. That's lovely, is it not? That's lovely language. And this one is depicted for us here, the same one who was the blessed man in the first psalm. The Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the holy man, the sinless man. And he always dwells in the secret place of the Most High. The problem with me is I get there sometime, but I stay there very much like I stay in motels. I'm just there for a night or two at a time. Now, will you notice as we move into this psalm, it says, He shall surely deliver thee from the snare of the fowler, from the pestilence which destroys. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou find refuge. His truth shall be shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flieth by day. I had a young man that was in the service during the war, and he took that as his verse. And the Lord brought him through. He felt on the basis of that verse. Then another young man took one down below here. And I read this, "...nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday." And this is the one he took. He was in the Air Corps in the Navy. And he retired as a commander, very fine young man. And he's not so young right now, but this was his verse. A thousand shall fall by thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand. It shall not come nigh thee, only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. I think these verses here have been used by God's people. And many, many times, and God has made it real to them. But it's a picture of our Lord. Now, I want to give you the statement of Dr. A.C. Gabeline, a great Bible teacher over the past generation. He has this to say of this passage. Let us think of himself first of all. 
there was no sin in him. And that which is the result of sin, disease and death, had no claim on him. In every way, he was the perfect man. And because he trusted in God his Father, walked in perfect obedience, the great foulest Satan could not catch him, nor the pestilence of destruction. Covered by his feathers, under his wings, the perfect man on earth found his constant refuge. He knew no fear. That which befell others could never come nigh unto him, and his own follow him in the life of trust and obedience, claiming also preservation and protection. And I pause to intrude with this. I think these young men who took verses out of this psalm had a perfect right to do it, by the way. And God made it real in their lives. Listen to this. Yet how true it is, our body is dead on account of sin. Fanaticism may claim all these statements as having an absolute meaning for the trusting child of God. Experience teaches often the opposite. Because we are the failing and erring creatures of the dust, we need discipline and have to pass through the tests of faith. Yet in it all a believer can be in perfect peace, knowing that all is well. Though he slay me, yet will I trust, is the summit of free faith and true faith and confidence in God. This is quite a wonderful statement, is it not? Now I pick up the reading here again in verse 9. Because thou hast made Jehovah my refuge, even the most high thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come near thy tent. That's a picture of him, you see. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, I want you to look at that for a moment, because that's the passage that Satan quoted. And the interesting thing is, Satan knew this psalm applied to the Lord Jesus as well as the Lord Jesus did. He knew something a lot of theology professors don't know today. And will you notice this again? For he shall give his angels charge over thee. Now, I'm not going to take time to turn to it, but if you turn to the quotation that you have in the New Testament of this, when Satan quoted it to the Lord in his temptation in the wilderness, he left out this next clause to keep thee in all thy ways. You see, he left that out. And someone has said, the devil can quote Scripture for his purpose. Well, I don't think he can. He can misquote it. And he did that here. For he shall give his angels charge over thee. Yes, that's right. To keep thee in all thy ways. The Lord Jesus said, I've come to do the Father's will. And that meant to walk in his way. He'd be stepping out of the will of God if he had attempted to make the stones into bread, or if he had accepted the kingdoms of the world from Satan, or if he'd cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. All of that, why, he'd been out of the way of God, and he'll keep thee in all thy ways. And verse 12, "...they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone." All of this... Now, he has two becauses here. You'll notice verse 14, "...because he hath set his love upon me." And these are two very important becauses we have here. "...and because he hath set his love upon me, because he hath known my name, I'll deliver him, I'll set him on high." You see, the perfect man went into the jaws of death, and he went down into the lowest parts of the earth which mean death and the grave. And deliverance came on the third day when God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. And he says, I'll set him on high. What a picture that we have here in this psalm. Now we come to the 92nd psalm. And when we come to this psalm, we find it has an inscription here, a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. And we find here this is a time of praise. And it naturally follows that messianic psalm. But you find out when you come here 
for a time of praise and worship and adoration. That's what the Sabbath was given for. But wait just a minute. The worship here is connected with an earthly sanctuary. And it actually is looking forward to the day back in Jerusalem when there'll be an earthly sanctuary again. And his redeemed people are going to worship there. Now, the worship of believers today is just a little bit different. The time has now come when true worshipers worship God neither in the mountain of Samaria or yonder in Jerusalem. We are today to worship the Father and the Son in spirit and in truth. We are made into a kingdom of priests unto God to serve him, not in an earthly sanctuary, but to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so it opens on this glorious note. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. You want to do a good thing today? Do your good turn? All right, give thanks unto the Lord right now. Wherever you are, just give thanks to the Lord. And uh, sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. You can thank him in the morning. I always thank him in the morning. I must confess, I forget sometimes at night. But in the morning, I always thank him for a new day. His loving kindness has brought me to a new day. But when you go to bed at night, the thing that you can thank him for is his faithfulness. He brought you through the day. And I think it's quite an undertaking to bring Vernon McGee through any day. It's wonderful to have a God that will do that. This is a glorious, wonderful psalm. Now, it mentions down here, verse 6, "...a brutish man knoweth not." Or, the New Schofield puts it, "...a stupid man knoweth not." Neither doth a fool understand this. That's all right. I think that's very good. And in this psalm of praise, which I think is a millennial psalm, and it looks forward to the future, time of worshiping again on the Sabbath day. I don't worship on the Sabbath day. I worship on the first day of the week. My Lord was dead on the Sabbath day, but he came back from the dead on the first day of the week. And we remember that. Now, will you notice that we have here the Most High. That's a millennial name for God, by the way. And this is a great millennial psalm that we're in. Now it looks back in retrospect to earthly conditions. When? Well, to man down here. The man we saw in the 90th psalm. Man is brutish. Scripture says he doesn't walk upright. He thinks he does, but doesn't. And he doesn't walk and look up to God. He looks down and he grovels in the filth of sin. He's a fool. He lacks good sense. He cannot understand because God says the foolish heart is darkened. And this brutish man, he denies God. And he lives like a brute. He lives like an animal. Lives like a pig, by the way. Many live just like that as if God does not exist. Just eat and grunt and sleep and rest and work, and that's it. That's life for them. What a beautiful picture, though, that we have brought before us when we get to verse 11. Mine eyes shall witness as to mine enemies. Mine heart shall hear about the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree. Well, now that's interesting. He shall grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Now, the palm tree has been an emblem of victory, and the cedar tree denotes strength and seriousness. That's a picture of the righteous that are walking in fellowship with God, I think, even today. Now, when we come to the 93rd Psalm, it's a very brief psalm, you will notice here. It's a little psalm that's tucked in here, just five verses. And here the Lord has come to his glorious reign over the earth. And who is it? Jehovah reigneth. That's the Lord Jesus. He's clothed with majesty. Jehovah's clothed. He hath girded himself with strength. This is a psalm that really have meaning when he comes to reign on this earth. And the rebellion and opposition will be broken down. 
and be over with. And all that opposed God has been dethroned on the earth. Listen as you move down in this little psalm here. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their ways. The flood tide of sin is over now. And Satan, his head has been crushed. And the Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Yea, the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house. Now we come to the 94th Psalm here. And from Psalm 94 to 100, we have another little series of Psalms that tell out a consecutive story and goes from Psalm 94 to Psalm 100. And it's a prophetic section altogether. They are glorious millennial psalms, and they reveal the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his reign down here upon this earth. And it follows that time of Jacob's trouble and all of the trouble that came to man on the earth during that period. It's a glorious picture of the future. Now, in this section, I'm just going to lift out just a few things that are here. And again, you have it as it opens like this. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. O God, to whom vengeance belongeth. Show thyself. Shine forth, as it were. Shine forth, O God. And a great many today are saying, Oh, if the Lord would only come. Well, he's coming, friends. But he's coming on his schedule, not on my schedule, or the schedule of any man down here. Then when he comes, he'll take care of all of these things that he's told you and me to walk in faith, holding his hand today, and he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. I'm going to take care of this. This is his coming to straighten out everything on earth. There are a lot of things to be straightened out. And he's coming in great power and great glory to this earth. Now he says, in the meantime, avenge not yourselves. Trust him. Turn these matters over to him, and he's coming. And again, we have a reference here, verse 8, to the brutish are the stupid. Understand ye stupid among the people, and ye fools, when will ye be wise? And he says here, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? Now, God's a spirit. He doesn't have an ear like I have, but he hears. And he doesn't have an eye like I have, but God sees. The sinner down here, for some reason, thinks he's getting by with it. God hears. God sees. And he's able to keep a record. And you're coming up for judgment. There are not but two places for your sins. Either your sins are on Christ or they're on you. Now, if they're on Christ, the judgment is passed. Passed from judgment to life. There's a glorious prospect ahead. But my friend, if you haven't come to Christ, you're yet to come up for judgment. And God sees this. And the psalmist can say here in verse 18, When I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, help me up. David said, I would have slipped up, but God helped me up. Then in the 95th Psalm, we have here just a delightful hymn of praise. Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And then in Psalm 96, and again, you have here another wonderful psalm of praise. When the Lord Jehovah, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, shall reign over the whole earth. And these are singing psalms. I think all of them are for that matter, but these, I think, especially we're singing psalms that we have here. And 96, O oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Now, we've already seen about that new song. They're going to sing that in heaven. It's a song of redemption. Now, the new song here is a song that the prophets mentioned that it was coming. Book of Revelation says they're going to sing it. It's a time when a new song will be sung. The prophets said... The day will come when they'll sing it. I think these are the psalms they'll be singing at that time. 
Now, in this 96th Psalm, you have idolatry mentioned. And that in verse 4, and let me just lift that out. I don't want to spend too much time here. Verse 4, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heaven. Idolatrous mention here because in the millennium that'll end all of it. Men who think themselves wise today, turning to all kinds of religions. May I say to you that will be a day when atheism, deism, polytheism, pantheism, and all the cults will be done away with. And we're to give unto Jehovah all families of the peoples. Give unto Jehovah glory and strength. That's verse 7. Oh, how wonderful this is. And then we have here another very wonderful psalm. And it's a call to sing again. How wonderful. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. He's done marvelous things. And then Psalm 99, the Lord reigneth, let the peoples tremble. This, another great song of praise. And he is the mighty one. My friend, if you haven't got in the habit of praising our God, you better get in the habit. If you go into heaven, you better tune up because you're going to spend a lot of time praising him there. And since we'll be doing that, the place to tune up is down here. Later on, we'll come to a psalm that says, The Lord is good. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And this looks to the future when they're going to praise him here on earth during the millennium. It's not the millennium yet, but there's no reason in the world why you and I should not praise him today and say how wonderful our God is. And you know why we should say it? Because he is wonderful and he's good and he's faithful, and his loving kindness endureth. He's always going to be good to me. He's always going to be good to you, friends. Doesn't that do something for you? Now, friends, as we come to Psalm 100, we're coming to the grand finale of that very wonderful little cluster of psalms that began with Psalm 94, and it closes with this. And this is the section in which we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ as King. Jehovah is King. Just let me drop back, pick out the first verses of these Psalms. That is several of them. 93rd Psalm, the Lord reigneth. He's clothed with majesty. That's for the future. That speaks of the time that he'll come again to this earth. He didn't come that way before. He came, as George MacDonald put it, he came a little baby thing that made a woman cry. But he's coming next time, we're told here, clothed with majesty. And then Psalm 94, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. And he's coming to make things right on this earth. And he can do it as you and I couldn't do it. We would be vindictive. And he won't reign that way. He will vindicate, but not be vindictive. And then in Psalm 95, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. My, it's wonderful. And Psalm 96 said, Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. And then here in Psalm 97, The Lord reigneth. And again in 98, O sing unto the Lord a new song. And then 99, the Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. Now we come to the great doxology. This is the hallelujah chorus here at the end. And it's the glorious finale of this very precious cluster of psalms. Listen to it. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All ye lands, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And again, I'd like to emphasize that which we repeat every now and then. And that is, God doesn't want you to come before him to worship with a long face. Now, there are times when we've got a long face. 
sorrows come to us. Problems beset us. Temptations have overcome us. Now we come to God, but we come to God in repentance, asking for forgiveness and casting ourselves upon Him. That's not worship. Now, you worship God when you come to praise Him, and He wants you to be happy. A lot of these bar rooms and motels that we get in, they have in the afternoon what they call a happy hour. Well, I wish we had a happy hour in the church without the liquid, and we need a happy hour on this program. Let's tune up for it. Get ready for it, because we want to worship God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, O ye lands. That includes everybody. This is a universal praise, by the way. And this is the time when the world will be able to sing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Now, that didn't take place 1,900 years ago. And by the way, that song was not written as a Christmas song relative to his first coming. That song should be reserved till he comes again. And I'm waiting to sing it at that time because I can't sing now. So I'll sing it then. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And that's what this is. What a wonderful thing it is. And it says, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. And it's a wonderful psalm of praise. Praise to him. Worship him. Glorify him. There's not enough of that today. May I venture this criticism? And it is that. You know, we retired preachers, we become experts. We can tell all the young ones how to do it. And the people in the church, how to do it. And so I'm going to tell them how to do it now. I believe that today, if there's one criticism I'd want to make for my ministry, I didn't have enough praise in the service. We ought to praise God, worship God. We ought to get gloriously joyful in his presence. Now, this great psalm is just like a doxology. And I think there are many doxologies in the Word of God but the true believers today, I think, could turn, for instance, to the first chapter of the Ephesian epistle, and we could sing this one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. He's been good to us, given us all spiritual blessings. Some of us are not availing ourselves of them. We're keeping them on cold storage. And we're keeping it for a rainy day. Well, it's a rainy day today. I don't care how bright the sun is shining. Get out this blessing and start using it. And here's another one in the first chapter of Revelation. Under him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. My, I don't know about you, that just carries me into the clouds. Now the whole earth is called upon to shout aloud their praises unto Jehovah and to sing the mighty hallelujah chorus, because in that day the world will know him. And in this third verse here, we have something I think quite interesting. We have here a homogenizing of God is the Creator and is the Redeemer. Listen to this. It's a lovely thing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. And there are a lot of people who don't know that. And a lot of Christians don't. In the early church, you remember when that first persecution broke out? The apostles came back and reported to the early church there in Jerusalem. They went to God in prayer, and they began by saying, O Lord, Thou art God. Somebody says, well, that's easy to say. It's easy to say, but do you really believe it today? There are a lot of Christians that are acting like God's not there. They're not acting like, Lord, thou art God. And that's what this says here. He is God. Don't you know that the Lord's God? It is he who hath made us and not we ourselves. That's God the Creator. We ought to worship him because he is the Creator. He made this universe. 
we're going to come to a nature psalm, a creation psalm, maybe not today, but next time. I want to talk to you about that in particular. But now notice, not only we worship him as creator, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. How did you become a sheep? Because you're redeemed. Here's a case where the shepherd died for the sheep. Sheep didn't die for this shepherd, but the shepherd died for the sheep, and we are the sheep of his pasture. Now, wait just a moment. What sheep is he talking about here? The sheep he's talking about here is Israel. He's their shepherd, too. And you remember, he told them from their viewpoint, he says, other sheep I have, which they're not of this flock here. They don't belong to this one. I belong to that, and you belong to that if you're in the church. Listen to this. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, to his courts with praise. Now, that's the way he wants you to come into his presence. Someone said to me the other day that attended a great church. It's been a great church in the past. And they said, I've never been in a place where it was so dead. And you know what the problem was? People weren't coming in there with praise. And they didn't come in there to be thankful. They didn't enter his gates with thanksgiving, and they didn't come into his courts with praise. Now, if you go into church on Sunday and worship, make sure, my friend, that you go there with thanksgiving and praise. And if you don't have a little of that, you're not going to be very helpful to the church. For the Lord is good. Can we say that today? I don't know where you are, who you are, why you are, when you are. But I know this, that God is good. God is good, and he's good to you. He's good to me. Oh, how good he is. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. Didn't run out of it. And many of you, I guess, because he extended so much on me, thought he ran out of mercy. He didn't. He's got a lot left for you today. His mercy is everlasting. It's like that flower barrel of that widow where Elijah was. They just never ran out. And his truth endureth to all generations. My, this is a great psalm. Now, when we come to Psalm 101, we've come to a Davidic psalm. David wrote this one. We haven't had many of them recently that he wrote. But now we have another marvelous arrangement of another little nest of psalms. From Psalm 101 to Psalm 106. And guess who is the subject of the hymn book? Well, it's all about him again, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the king of righteousness and peace, and he's going to reign on this earth. And this is a psalm that speaks of mercy and of judgment. And this is a psalm of David. It actually couldn't be fitted into his reign at all. So it's prophetic, and it looks on to the man that God told David about that was coming in his line. David said, he told me about the man that's coming in my line. And this is all about him, not Solomon, not any in that Davidic line until Jesus was born in Bethlehem because he was the house and lineage of David, both Joseph and Mary were. And this is the man we're talking about. And notice here in Psalm 101, we're going to start out again singing praises to God. I will sing of mercy and justice. Now, those two don't get along together very much today. Mercy and justice, it's difficult for man to hold him in balance, but God can. And we can sing of mercy and justice unto thee, O Lord, will I sing and here he is, the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. What a wonderful one we have here. He says, I'll behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? I'll walk within my house with a perfect heart. And I don't remember ever David walking like that. We have him here as the Redeemer and the only begotten of the Father. That's the picture uh, we have of him here. And let's look at him here for just a moment. The king speaks as the son of man. And you notice that he is here, the son of man on the earth. And it must be remembered that in his work as a redeemer, 
He was the only begotten of the Father, but he takes his place under God subject to his will. Now, he occupied a lower place, but he took that willingly. We today attempt to get to a higher place. He took a lower place in order that he might bring us to a higher place. And before his incarnation, he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. And on this earth, he stated that actually his meat and drink was to do the will of the Father that had sent him. And he did perfectly his will. And he patiently waited for that hour, which he called my hour, when he wrought out your salvation and mine. Now, he's yonder at God's right hand. And he's still doing the will of God. He's waiting for the hour when the Father will send him into the world again because he says, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. Now we are told, When all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And that's a verse in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. It's caused a great deal of discussion. What does it mean? It means that after he reigns on this earth, subject to the Father, he's going back to his place in the Godhead, a member of the Trinity. But down here he will reign like that. And he says here, "...I'll declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praises unto thee." Now, this is the position that he took down here, but... Notice when he's going to reign, how he's going to reign. And David never reigned like this. A perverse heart shall depart from me. An evil person I will not recognize. Whosoever slandereth his neighbor I will destroy. I began reading at verse 4. Him with a lofty look and proud heart I'll not suffer, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that is given to deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that speaketh lies shall not be established in my sight. Morning after morning will I destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all workers of iniquity from the city of Jehovah. And that is a picture of his reign here on this earth. And during the millennium, you're not going to be able to take your case to the Supreme Court, my friend. For the very simple reason, he is the supreme court. He's all of it. He's going to judge. The Father says he's turned all judgment over to the Son, and he'll judge them every morning. And you're going to have to toe the line. You talk about a dictator, Jesus Christ will be a dictator when he reigns on this earth, and you'll do his will. Now we come to Psalm 102nd. And it's a very wonderful psalm also. And it's a messianic psalm. And it's a psalm that pictures him in Gethsemane. Now, we do not have a writer of it. There's been all kinds of guesses as a result. Well, I'll guess David, if you don't mind. And it's a prayer of the afflicted when he's overwhelmed and pours out his complaint before the Lord. This is Gethsemane. Our Lord's in Gethsemane in this psalm, and we see him afflicted. We see him in his humiliation. And the psalm's been marked out by the Holy Spirit in the New Testament as being a messianic psalm. And we'll find that down just a little later. Now, we have here, Jehovah, hear my prayer. This is interesting. Here is a case where Jehovah prays to Jehovah. He came in humiliation, yet he was Jehovah manifested in the flesh. And you remember back over in Genesis, the 19th chapter, we find there a very remarkable statement. Maybe I ought to turn to that. I didn't intend to because I think it's important enough for us to see today. It's in Genesis, the 19th chapter. And if you want to turn there with me, 19 verse 24, "...then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire, from the Lord out of heaven, 
Now, he did that according to what? According to the prayer. That was judgment. But this is different. Now Jehovah's on earth. And he asked Jehovah in heaven not to bring down judgment, but here in humiliation, facing his great work as the sin-bearer, the fellow of Jehovah that's able to save him out of death, and the prayers and supplications that he made with strong crying and tears, writer to the Hebrew speaks of, and he was heard. But we find that here, the wrath of a holy and righteous God fell upon him because he bore your sins and my sins. What a glorious, wonderful psalm that we have here. And now we come down in verse 8, and you just don't get any farther down in here. This is the deepest woe and agony that you can have. Mine enemies reproach me all the day. And verse 10, because of thine indignation and thy wrath, for thou hast lifted me up and cast me down. And the word indignation and wrath here are the strongest terms you could use in the Hebrew language. But why did he do this? It was for the joy that was set before him. Listen to him. Verse 12, But thou, O Lord, shall endure forever thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion for the time to favor her, yet the set time is come. He'll have mercy upon Zion. And so it was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He died, you see, for that nation. And John eleven fifty one mentions that was necessary for one to die for the nation. And he died for that nation. Now we have the reference, and I must drop down to it here. And he's going to build again, he says in verse 16, build up Zion, and he'll appear in his glory. And that's when he comes again. But here you have the quotation in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews 1, 10 and 12. And you have here, "...of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands, they shall perish." But thou shalt endure, yea, all of them shall become old like a garment, like a vesture. Shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Now, this is a very marvelous, wonderful psalm. And it wouldn't have been known that this was a messianic psalm if it hadn't pleased the author of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, to reveal the meaning of this passage where it's quoted in the closing verses of the first chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews. And there it's applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings before us here Gethsemane. And I like to think of this being the psalm of Gethsemane. Oh, this is all about him. Now, friends, we come to another very remarkable psalm, Psalm 103. This is the psalm that Gustavus Adolphus, when he entered Augsburg in victory, after he'd had the victory at Leipzig, this is the psalm that he had read at that particular time. And this psalm here, it looks on to a new day, actually even beyond the millennium into eternity. And it will find the fullness of fulfillment then. Now, the nation Israel in the past has turned to this psalm, and the godly Israelite today turns to this psalm. And in the future, he'll turn to this psalm. And the church and individual believers find in it a real source of strength and light. It is a psalm of praise and of thanksgiving for things, and praise for a person, and that person is Christ. I suppose it was sung as an antiphony. It was sort of a solo to begin with, and then it ended with a symphony of universal praise. And I've divided the psalm like this. You have in the first two verses an admonition for the present. 
and in verses 3 through 9, a declaration concerning Jehovah. And then in verses 10 through 16, a declaration concerning man. And then verses 17 through 22, a proclamation for the future. Now, will you notice this very first? It's an admonition for the present. And notice how personal it is. Twice it's used here in these first two verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's the word, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And the polychrome Bible translated that, all that is deepest within me. And this is a psalm that gets way down where we live. And it reveals something, actually, to my own heart here. Well, it's a psalm that we're to praise him, we're to glorify him. And yet, when I come to this psalm, I recognize that I just can't quite make it. (laughs) I do the best I can, and my soul goes out to him, but not like it should. And friends, there's a real danger today, and I would put up a warning sign that there is a danger of going to church, going through a ritual, and it absolutely be nothing in the world but just parroting pious platitudes. This is the thing that God warned his people about in Isaiah 29:13. The people draw me with their mouth and their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of man. It's nothing in the world but just lip worship. There's absolutely no submission to God's Word and God's demands, but following just the precepts of man. And we have it today not only as we turn to Judaism. Why, my friend, if we turn to Romanism, it's very easy for us Protestants today to point our finger and say, just look how dead their religion is. By the way, friend, how dead is your church and how dead is your worship? And that's the thing that troubles my own heart. Oh, my soul, if I could just only lift A praise that would be pure and from the depths of my heart. That is the thing that we long for. There's a lot of chanting today in ritualism. It's easy to say that modernism rejects all the great truths. But do we just go to church and mouth these things and it can be said of us, their heart is removed from me? All that's within me, praise his holy name. You know, the flesh can't do this. May I make a confession to you? You won't tell anybody, will you? Let's just keep this to ourselves. But you know, I can't worship him as I'd like to worship him. And you know why? This old nature, this old flesh I got just can't rise to that level And it's only by the Holy Spirit that you and I can worship him today in spirit and in truth and forget not all his benefits. (laughs) He's been so good to us as we look back over the past. How wonderful this psalm is. Now, he begins to move out here, and we have a declaration concerning Jehovah our God. And it's in his relationship to man, of course. Notice this. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Now, I'm of the opinion here, and I find I disagree with many people here. This speaks of the kingdom age, way out yonder, as we said at the beginning, even in eternity. And I'd be very frank to say, 
that this refers to physical disease as well as spiritual disease. And he's made it very clear that in the kingdom age, what he would do, he says, and the inhabitant shall not say, I'm sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. And that's Isaiah 33, 24. May I say to you, my friend, I hear people say, well, many of these faith healers today, they emphasize salvation. I don't think they emphasize it. They put it on like a caboose to a healing service. I've never been to them, but those that go tell me that at the end, they always give an invitation to accept Christ. My friend, there can be no healing until your sins are forgiven. Disease is the result of sin, and the sin question must be settled first of all. He was delivered actually for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. And until that takes place, then I personally do not think that there is that forgiveness that we hear so much about today. And I believe that is the thing that Peter was talking about when he quoted from Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2. He says, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." Healed of what? Your sins, my friend. That is the important thing, the all-important thing. Now, as you move down into this, he says, "...who redeemeth thy life from destruction." And by the way, before we move away from that, we ought to recognize the fact that many of God's choicest servants have been sick and never been healed in this life, not even up to their dying day. Paul the Apostle was one. And if anyone should have claimed healing, seems to me like he should have. But he had a thorn in his flesh, which apparently was eye trouble. Fanny Crosby, sick to her dying day. And John Milton, that great singer of Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained. He was a man who was blind. Helen Keller. What about these, friends? You mean to tell me today you have the audacity to say that you can claim healing and there's something wrong with you if you don't have it? It's wonderful if you get healing, but let's understand one thing. God's choicest servants never have experienced that at all. Now, this is a very wonderful section that deals with our God. And we're told here, "...he satisfieth thy mouth with good things." so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. I was very much amused at seeing a faith healer on TV. I was shocked. Pictures I'd seen, she looked like a high school girl. What I saw on TV was not a high school girl. He had not renewed thy youth. And my friends, that'll take place in the millennium. In fact, i got a new body coming to me. Don't have it yet. I'm going to get it someday. Now, will you listen to this? The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all who are oppressed. That's verse 6. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. You see, God made his way known to Moses. But all that the children of Israel saw, they just saw the miracle. They didn't understand. There are a lot of folk like that today in the church. They recognize certain truths. But they don't enter into the way of God, of how important that is. And the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. And mercy is what we need today. We need that above everything else. Now, will you notice we have now here a declaration concerning man. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. Now, notice verse 10. He hath not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Now, my friend, if God would deal with you according to your sins and according to your iniquities, none of us would be saved. 
Now he says, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. You see, it's his mercies today that are so important. And we need to recognize that, that it's by his mercy. And then he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Now, he didn't say as far as the north is from the south. That would be pretty far from the North Pole to the South Pole. But when you start moving from east to west, there's no end to the east and there's no end to the west. You just keep going and it's east. And you're going east all the time. When you go west, you'll be going west all the time. But you see, when you go north, you get to a place where you start going south. But when you start going east, you never stop. And that's as far as he's removed our transgressions from us. And as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. God is so good, and we do not seem to recognize it. Now, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Dr. George Gill used to put it like this. He says that God remembers that we are dust. He says we forget it. And when dust gets stuck on itself, it's mud. And that's the picture of man. As for man, his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourisheth. You won't be here very long, friends. Somebody said to me the other day, said, I notice you're getting a little gray. And I said, yes. Well, I said, you know, I notice you are too. And I said, you know what God's trying to tell us? When God puts gray in your hair, he's saying you're not going to be here much longer. When you get the arthritis and you have trouble getting up of the morning, that's a warning from God. God says, you won't be here very much longer. You need to get things straightened out. Now we begin to look to the future. And what are we going to have in the future? But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon those who fear him and his righteousness under children's children. It is a wonderful, wonderful thing to look down into the future and to know that God will always be merciful to us. How wonderful it is. And that is something that we need to recognize. Now, let me just lift out the last verse here. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul.